0: Welcome to episode 25 of the Carnism Debunk podcast. Today's guest is Bryony, and we're going to be delving into some stuff I've never covered in any of my content before. And just a warning to any listeners before we proceed, this episode delves into dark topics such as hard drug use and addiction. 14 years ago, Bryony found herself injecting heroin into her foot in a nightclub toilet. Come 2024, and Bryony has turned her life around and is now a handstand and calisthenics coach promoting the importance of a healthy lifestyle. Furthermore, Bryony's active for the animals and has done work over the years in the vegan community here in the West Country in England. So, Bryony, thanks for coming on today to talk about such a dark and sensitive subject and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited.
0: Awesome. So, tell us your story how did you come into addiction tell us how that kind of works and what kind of place you were in in your life when that all happened
1: so I think like most teenagers I was kind of dabbling in like alcohol and drugs and it was nothing too serious at the start but uh at some point there was there was a a change in me where I finally got offered some drugs at the age of 15 and um I believe it was it was possibly MDMA, but you know when it was all a bit dodgy back then. I mean, it always mm-hmm. is, but who could knows what different. was being cut with it because I, the, when I tell people what I was seeing, they said it sounds like it could have been cut with opium as well. Mm-hmm. So good, like goodness knows what I was taking. I've really got no idea. But it was that that really got me hooked and I just kept going back for more. I just really couldn't stop. So I ended up sort of becoming that person that was like, encouraging everyone else to do it. I wanted to be that person that was going the extra mile, that was the craziest out of all of my friends. Cause I always had a hard time fitting in at school and making friends. So I thought if I stand out and I'm this like crazy girl at school doing loads of drugs, everyone's gonna think I'm so cool and that they all wanna hang out with me. And yeah, that's kind of like my thought pattern behind it, I guess that it was maybe just rejection from not fitting in at school to wanting to be this out there, outgoing, druggy as a teenager
0: so you mentioned it was at school like how how old were you when this kind of happened uh
1: probably from 15 and then 16 i would say like officially like really into it um so just like coming out of school but i wasn't attending school quite a lot because i i just was always skiving and trying to get out of it so i didn't come out with school with any any qualifications or anything
0: (laughs) yeah and were there any um were there any sort of bad issues going on in your personal life that you think also made you resort to that kind of stuff and addiction or do you think it was just about stuff you had experienced at school and never feeling that you fit in
1: What i think it was is um i moved from guernsey uh from the channel islands when i was 13 and i mm-hmm. got moved halfway through year nine and i think it's a really like key time in any teenager's life to To have like a big change like that. So I lost all my friends, my comfort, like the island life was so cushy. Then we came here and it was just like a big scary world for me. And I I was always like that new person because I was coming in halfway through after like the Easter holidays. And I had like big shoes, like my clothes looked weird. So everyone picked on me. So I think there was it was an element of that. Like, it was never horrible bullying. There's people with much worse stories in terms of that than me. But I think that definitely, like, instigated the thought of, like, I'm going to prove all of you idiots wrong, and I'm going to be the cool one, and I'm going to take drugs, and you're going to look stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah. So how did you go from these kind of drugs like MDMA and, I assume, stuff like cocaine and weed and all that kind of stuff that pretty much all my listeners will have – dabbled in to some extent how do you go from that kind of stuff that you just go on taking at parties to the severe stuff like heroin like what was kind of the gateway there and how do you go from these party drugs to these kind of what we consider these life-ruining drugs like heroin
1: good question right so i believe the real problem started when i was 18 and I met someone who was a well-known drug dealer in Bristol, I was living in Bristol at the time. And he just had access to everything, like anything mm. you wanted, money, celebrities. He was dealing to lots of like bands at the time. He would be backstage at, uh, I don't even know the venue's name in Bristol anymore, but to all those places. So anything I wanted, I could have. Um, so that's where I then got more into cocaine. And then mm. I had a full-blown addiction with that. And I was even just so horrible, like obviously no one's particularly nice in cocaine, but I was so horrible and so spoiled, demanding more money, wanted more this, more that, a nicer flat. I was like just completely like self-obsessed. So he didn't actually give me the heroin when I came across it. It just, it just got offered to me when I was in a nightclub and I saw someone else injecting it into their foot. So I thought, that's what you do. And that's, that's kind of where it ended up. I just, I seem to be a bit of a copycat in lots of ways. I'm like, oh, she's doing it. That's cool. I'm going to do that.
0: And did you have any particularly dark experiences on heroin that you want to talk to us about? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty dark. I'm not going to lie. Like the, The fact that you end up doing something like that, but were there any kind of crazy nightmarish moments that you had on it that you look back and think, wow, I can't believe that this happened?
1: yeah i am that night in particular i think i well i must have gone unconscious because i was on a whole cocktail of drugs so it's hard to know like exactly what the heroin did to me because i was already on mdma cocaine some other pills enough to probably like give me a heart attack really um but from what i remember i then wake up in some random guy's house i have no idea where i am no idea what's going on i've been missing now for like 18 hours and When I finally wake up and come back into my sort of reality of what's happened, I found out that all my friends have been calling the police. They've reported me as a missing person and just no one really knew what happened. I didn't even know what happened. And that that kind of scared me enough in that moment. Because I thought, well, all these people have been reporting that I'm missing. And what if it finally goes back to my family and then they find out that I'm missing and I'm doing all these things? Because I was hiding it quite well from them at that point, from what I, I think I was hiding well anyway
0: yeah to what extent do your family know about um the fact that your addiction and that you were taking heroin and stuff at a young age
1: they know now I they still don't know fully because I try and protect my dad a little bit but he knows enough because I've I've been open about it in my journey just so that people can feel like what I've gone through is relatable um and because often like now as being into fitness and using this as my profession people are like oh you've always been really good and i'm like no i haven't like i've worked really hard for this so i've always been open and honest about it but yeah they they know a bit but not not too much maybe they'll know more after this
0: yeah um (laughs) have you ever seen the movie train spotting
1: remind me what's it like
0: it's um it's it's a 1996 movie um Ewan McGregor is the main character. It's yeah. about a group of heroin junkies in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, oh
1: my gosh. Yeah, I have. I have.
0: Yeah, it's a cult classic. Like it's one of yeah. those movies you've you've got to watch. Um, because there's a quote from it. Because what what I basically want to ask you because not not that I'm promoting that anyone does this or anything, but <laughs> what I want to ask you is what does heroin feel like? Because there's a quote in it that's something about like, um take your best orgasm and multiply it by 10,000 and you're still not anywhere even near close. And I think I've only spoken to maybe one other person before who I've mentioned that quote to, who said that they've done heroin in their life. They said they personally didn't agree with that quote in train spotting. Um, But but the movie Mm -hmm. very much makes it out to just be the most insanely euphoric drug ever that... It just doesn't compare to any feeling or experience that you could have in your life. So how how would you personally, from what you remember, describe how heroin feels when you inject it? In,
1: uh, in the very moment from what I remember, you feel very warm, everything's really good, you're like cosy, you could like just sink into the bed and you're like, oh, this is incredible. That's yeah. from what I remember in those couple of minutes or moments that I had afterwards. Just like a really like sort of, like nice tight sort of sensation so I kind of get that quote but maybe not to that extreme but maybe I was already too far gone and lots of other things so it's hard to say
0: it's I'm not super clued up on drugs but from what I know heroin heroin is basically the street version of morphine right which we give to patients who are in severe pain So it's kind of almost like this warming, Uh, hugging feeling. mm -hmm. And your, would you say your troubles kind of just wash away in the moment and you kind of forget? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. There's, you know, one of the scenes in Train Spotting, I guess, that quite artistically portrays that is he takes it and this is Ewan McGregor's character, Renton, and he kind of just falls back into the floor and the carpet just kind of, comes up mm. like that and he gets rushed to hospital but while he's getting rushed to hospital you see it from his vision and i don't know if you remember the scene the sort of the the floor rug carpet is kind of like around him in his field of vision as he gets taken to the hospital just yeah. metaphorically kind of thing so it's that like what you said then i guess kind of reminds me a bit of that scene but um is there any is there anything else you can kind of compare it to for anyone who's just kind of very curious about how it feels? Is it kind of euphoric in the way that, I don't know, MDMA is or is it just this kind of almost this Ooh. reliever kind of thing?
1: Ooh, it's definitely a reliever. I mean, like another way you could describe it is like you're getting into like a warm bubble bath for the first time and it's like so good. It's like you really needed it and everything just relaxes. It's like your muscles are just like like completely just chilled. That's, like, the closest thing that I could compare it to. Um, Yeah.
0: And when you were taking it, was there any – I guess technically you couldn't have had a massive fear because you were taking it, but but was there any slight fear that you could be taking, like, infected needles or anything like that? I mean,
1: I probably was, but maybe I just got really lucky that night. Who knows? But there was – I mean, I just – I really didn't think about stuff like that back then. I remember taking like even on that same night i'm pretty sure i was i bought some pills off a guy and i literally like took it he just put it out in his hand and like just um gave it to me and i dropped them all on the floor and he looked at me and he went pick it up and i was like oh okay so i picked it up and on this grubby lakota nightclub floor and ate them mm. all like that's just how little i cared about oh
0: my God. what i was
1: doing yeah or yeah. thought of it makes me feel sick
0: <laughs> right Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, (laughs) I saw this video meme. It was like me in my 20s taking a random pill, a stranger has just given me in a nightclub of just carefree sort of swallowing the pill. And it's like now me in my 30s reading the back of like a Nurofen (laughs) packet, like (laughs) hoping I don't overdose or something like that. That's literally me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, after that experience at the nightclub, Did you dabble in heroin again, or did you think never again after you kind of passed out and then woke up in a random house?
1: Yeah, no, after that, that was enough to scare me off. But I was taking MDMA that I'm pretty sure was cut with opium because I was having very bizarre experiences. And I still, I'm still not 100% sure. So I'm always curious to know what other people think that have gone down that route. But for example, I would have these posters of like my favorite bands back in my flat, and I didn't sleep for three or four days after taking. I think I took a gram of MDMA one night and uh and they That's like the there three guys in the poster and they just like they were all individually popping out the poster talking to me it felt very very dark yeah so I don't know I don't know if that is an MDMA experience or not because if I was taking it then yeah it was obviously very
0: strong well yeah MDMA can actually induce hallucinations I guess depending on who yeah. you are and the dosage you take but um I don't, maybe it was cut with I, I don't know to what extent opium does that or anything um I, I know hardly anything about heroin I guess so yeah. I guess that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to get you on and ask you your story about this but um how how easy is it to get heroin on the streets of the UK because I've always considered it to be something that you could probably only get if you knew some really, really dodgy people and it might be just one person you knew or something. But is it easier than that to get? Could you just get, like, say someone wanted to just get some tonight, could they just get it?
1: I think so. I think it's very easy.
0: So even, so say you have a link to like a weed dealer or something like that, who might not sell it themselves, you could probably just through them be like, i want to yeah, score he some know. heroin or something and he would get a link like for you or whatever
1: 100 percent. i think it's much easier in fact i think i'm pretty sure i witnessed someone actually injecting it in their leg the other day in a phone box and i was walking on the street
0: mm. yeah i mean i assume yeah i, I now i assume if someone's going to be doing that on the street that's going to be a homeless person and they yeah. do some, They they often do um have such contacts and stuff but i'm just wondering yeah like but i guess you say is that easy that the average kind of man or woman living in their own house could whatever could get it if they just linked up with their weed dealer and stuff which is crazy um tell us about how you turned your life around and um how you overcame all this kind of stuff because it seemed like you were in a, a bad place when you were younger and i guess the thing is a lot of people when they when they're resorting to heroin use and and addiction to other drugs they kind of stay stuck there so how did you turn your life around
1: so it was the end of 2012 um so I had actually sorry i go back a little bit before that I've been still like holding a job down um I was still I could still work really hard and turn up um but I was always a bit that mental person on the shift. And I was working in retail jobs, so you can get away with quite a lot of stuff there. (laughs) But I wanted to get out of a retail job and find something different for some reason. And I came across working in a care home with children Mm. with um, quite severe sort of um, different needs that need to be looked after. So I think during that time, that was about 2012, I remember I was going out with this guy and I said, oh, you know, I'm taking on this new job. I should try and be more responsible. Maybe I should stop doing drugs. And then we both looked at each other and we just laughed hysterically. And we're like, no, that's never going to happen. Um, so there's that one sort of moment that I remember. But then towards the end of 2012, so I've been in this job for a couple of months. Um, still, I'm probably taking a little bit less and I'm definitely not doing it on shift at this point. I'm like, it's been pushed more to like just the evenings or the, the weekends. And... Um, so I think there was a slight natural progression in terms of that. But end of 2012, my mum gets diagnosed with bowel cancer, stage four, and it was just obviously a real shock. Like no one was expecting it. And um, and then it was about a couple of months of me still continuing on the same way, and she went through her chemotherapy. And then it sort of they said, you know, it's a miracle. She's going to be fine. It's all good. And then. That didn't last for very long so a couple of months later she then passed away so we watched her kind of just like look like she was dying over like the next three or four months so then we're Mm -hmm. sort of in like July 2013 during that time when I knew she was going to pass away I just felt more again like sort of a natural pull to like stop taking as many drugs but I was still doing it but now I had this guilt inside of me where I felt like this just feels wrong like I should be looking after my family I should be trying to get to know my mum more before she passed away. And then when she finally passed away, uh, July, 2013, it was about a week or so later, I sat with my niece. So I'm 24 at this point, And my niece is 13 and she said, she just out of the blue was just sat there together. She goes, I can't believe that people take drugs and drink and abuse their bodies. And Nana just passed away and she was so pure in her body and it woke me up. It was like, literally, yeah. Yeah, I feel like a light bulb moment happened in my brain. And I just went, I'm done. And that was it. And uh, yeah, that was just sort of my moment.
0: Yeah, so I guess it, it took, it's kind of ironic because it took another dark moment in your life to actually come out of that darkness, yeah. if that makes sense. It's strange as well, because what what they told you about your mum and her cancer. Bowel cancer is, from what I understand, pretty much a death sentence. Like I, mm-hmm. every person I've ever known who's had bowel cancer, that that was it. It's just like they're going to die in the next two months or something like that. It always seems to be one of those ones that it's like you just know um that it's going to happen next. And, and you're saying that there was almost this false sense of hope, like the hospital had told you guys it's going to be all right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that was obviously a, a deeply traumatic experience um, in itself. And do you think um, do, do you think that you sort of turning your life around then is it almost in homage to your mother who sadly passed away? Is it like a way of saying um, you know, I'm sorry that I that I went through this stage, and I I want to kind of I want to live the rest of my life how you'd have wanted me to live. It is that is that something to do with it as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I definitely like had more of that in my mind at the start. But I, I like now, sort of ten and a half years later, and I have to go back and like remind myself of that as well. Just yeah. be like, this is why I'm doing. Like when I have days where I struggle with my business, or I'm like, oh, why am I doing this job? Or Like it's, yeah, I do have to go back and like think this, you know, it's because I want to make an impact to help other people feel really good as well.
0: Yeah. Now, do you listen to that podcast by our favorite ex-vegan fool, Cosmic Skeptic? Who's that? if you don't know him you don't know him but i know a lot
1: about vegans but i don't know who this is
0: yeah okay so cosmic skeptic or alex o'connor he's a very well-known youtuber in the uk kind of an intellectual youtuber you know he's known in the philosophy spheres and the intellectual kind of spheres that kind of thing and um he went quote-unquote vegan a few years ago and now he has you know given up on the animals as many of them do he he claimed Mm -hmm. he made some terrible excuse about he has ibs or something even though there's thousands of vegans with ibs so um but anyway he he does a very interesting podcast uh and he had peter hitchens on recently and he was kind of pressing peter hitchens about drug policy policy and legislation um it's a very it's a pretty hilarious episode if anyone wants to check it out so do check it out um, for anyone listening, because Peter Hitchens ends up like storming off in the middle of the podcast just because he presses him on his beliefs about, um, drugs being staying illegal. Because I think Alex O'Connor himself, cosmic skeptic, is probably like many young people, um, Actually more open to the idea of legalizing drugs and actually being under the belief that that could possibly be safer, so I wanted to get your opinions on this now, or someone who was in a really dark place with drugs when they were younger. What is your idea like what is your belief now on drug policy and legislation? Do you have any strong beliefs on that?
1: Oh oh, that's a good question um so yeah um i haven't thought about it for a long time but there was a period when i gave it a lot of thought and i i was saying maybe out loud to a very small selection of people like i just think alcohol and drugs should be non-existent and just banned if it if that is a possibility hmm. um but yeah i know that's a quite extreme thought um especially a lot of people don't associate alcohol as a drug but there is. I mean, there's alcoholics, there's people dying from alcohol abuse, alcohol overdose, those kind of things. So I class alcohol as a drug as well. Um, Oh,
0: absolutely. You don't class it as one. It objectively is one, right? It just is. (laughs) It
1: it is. So, yeah. And, you know, people say everything in moderation. I'm like, well, people can't do crack in moderation. So I don't know. Where's the line?
0: So, all right. So let me try and press you on this a little bit, because this is interesting, because... (laughs) You're being consistent. That's great. But you're being consistent the other way than is the way that many people do. So what people usually say is, well, you're right, Bryony. Alcohol is a drug. It's, you know, it's no different from taking cocaine or something. It's a drug. Like you can wreck people's lives. Like if you look at the graphs and the charts and stuff, it shows that alcohol is one of the leading causes of, you know, violence and this and people Mm -hmm. ruining their lives and stuff in the UK, whatever it is. So I think due to alcohol being legal, We might as well legalize all drugs and regulate them and have them safer. So instead of going to these dodgy backstreet dealers and stuff, you know, you're actually getting your cocaine or MDMA, whatever it is, from a pharmacy. It's got the specified dosage. It's got warning. Do not take if you have this. Do not take if you have that. Um, And we basically legalize and regulate it in the same way that we do alcohol so it's not in the hands of dodgy backstreet dealers and we're not going down alleyways to get our moonshine on a Friday night and then dying of an alcohol overdose whatever now you're going from what I gather technically the other way so you're saying oh, no. ban them all <laughs> do, do you do you see a problem do, do you think that there could be more problems if you um if you make them all illegal including alcohol
1: oh yeah I don't know I guess that's just me and my ideal world is just not to have it at all. But I yeah. totally get where you're coming from what you're saying. That it's not, you know, that is also maybe an impossibility. Um yeah. so maybe it should be legalized, but yeah, I guess we don't know till we try, do we?
0: Yeah, well I think some I don't know exactly how this works, but I think some countries have legal is it Portugal might have now legalised hard drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know exactly how it works and to what extent, yeah, I, I I don't really understand, I guess, how it works, um, how you would get them, whether it's just like a possession thing that they've legalized, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, and I, I could be totally wrong on this. Like I, I, maybe I have a wrong opinion about this and perhaps my view is more harmful but I've, I guess I've held the belief maybe since I was in my, say, early 20s that we should maybe just legalise all drugs and regulate them in the way we do alcohol. My opinion on alcohol even is, yeah, it, it's bad. There's nothing really good about alcohol, right? He says, sipping mm-hmm. a glass of whiskey as he's got you on this podcast. <laughs> um, but but um, at the same time, I think the country would be worse if alcohol was illegal and people instead were going to backstreet dealers like they do heroin and stuff to get alcohol and i think that could be more dangerous i think now that yeah. drugs are in our society maybe it's better that we actually just legalize them all as a consistency thing because you're right it is inconsistent that alcohol is legal cocaine is not legal and is not legal like, yeah and i think that's that?
1: where my problem lies with it and like i and obviously i can be swayed either way i'm not like totally stuck on it like everything has to be banned like there is no such thing as an ideal world, is there? So we yeah. have to make the best of what we've got. But yeah, um, yeah, you're right. Like why is alcohol legal and other stuff is illegal? That's yeah, that's strange. And I, you made a good point as well about the violence thing, and that goes into homes, domestic violence, animal violence. Like it's just it's it's very prominent there with alcohol.
0: Yeah, it's um, it is a tough one, I guess, because. When, I guess, something has has kind of infected, I guess, our society in such a way, it's one of those things where it's like, do we just accept that we now have this problem and actually try and regulate it and make it safer? Or is Mm -hmm. that actually... um, Would that in in some way exacerbate the problem? Um, Like, what do you think about... do, Do you think if perhaps... Cocaine was legalized tomorrow. Do you think more people would do you think people go, Yes, it's legal? I've never done cocaine before, I've never had an interest in taking cocaine. But because it's now legal, I'm going to go to the pharmacy and get myself some cocaine. Or do you think the people who just wouldn't want it just wouldn't take it?
1: I don't know. I would like maybe this is too optimistic, but I'd like to think that now in this day and age that we're in, that people are more clued up and have more knowledge to not go and do that. But I know that yeah. that's probably quite a naive answer as well.
0: Well, no, it might not be because I guess the 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 arguments on the pro-legislation side would be what you've said there. They would say, look, people who don't want to take cocaine aren't going to just take it because it's been legal. It's just mm-hmm. the people who do take it will now be taking it instead of from, you know, shady Dave, the backstreet dealer, <laughs> who's yeah. cutting it. We've got those. What they go into the pharmacy or wherever to get it, and um, it's in like a prescription dose or whatever it is, and it has warning instructions on the the packet. Um, what was the other thing I was going to ask? Are, yeah, are you are you teetotal now? Then do you not drink or anything?
1: Yeah, no, I don't do anything. 10, ten just over ten years, like clean and sober. So I don't yeah. touch anything. I think because it had such an impact in my life and I've seen it with people close to me and not close to me, like have such an impact. That's why I just hold that view. It's just a view, not like I'm dead set on it. So like I'm totally changeable and stuff like that. But like, why take it if like, we know there's so much damage that can be done.
0: Do you still still go to parties and stuff like that where people are drinking or doing drugs around you?
1: Not really, but just because... I don't really get invited to stuff like
0: that. <laughs> we're, we're, we're boomers now. <laughs>
1: no. Rejection, I'm going to go and get high again.
0: <laughs> how, um, how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking?
1: I'm 34.
0: Are you, okay, you're exactly the same age as, as, as uh, me and Rachel then. So that's that's yeah. interesting. The, the boomer early 30s crew here. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 just few and far between now that you get invited to these things at yeah. that age. I, I can attest to that as well. Um, yeah. I just wanted to make a further point on the legislation thing. Just a little um, analogy that might change your mind somewhat if you are indeed in the make it illegal camp.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We do sell technically, you know, hardish kind of dangerous drugs in shops already. We have glue um, yeah. and we have um, butane gas. You know, I could just go down the shop now and buy a, a butane gas canister, for example um does the fact that i'm not going down the shop now and sniffing glue or taking butane gas does that somewhat sway you more to the legislation side to things like cocaine and mdma and stuff or do you still think no it it could be better that it's all illegal
1: no i I think that could sway me for sure Yeah. yeah but like i it's just such a hard one because I feel some sometimes I'm like yeah sometimes I'm like definitely get rid of it all. What's it doing on this planet? We should be, just be focusing on being pure in our bodies and healthy and all this stuff. But equally, yeah. I totally get that you know that's not that's not reality. But I do think maybe it's in different cultures as well. Like you tend to see maybe in somewhere like France or Italy, like there's less of an alcohol problem there perhaps I don't know if that's particularly a true stat but just as an example because they are better at moderation but maybe it's the British culture that we're in where it's just it's pretty rife here
0: yeah I think there are definitely some cultural stuff like you know I've got mates who have come back from like Spain or Italy and stuff because they've got family there and uh, you know my British mate will be cracking openly you know the the vodka at eight PM and saying, right, let's get on the pre-lash or something, lads, or whatever. And everyone they'll be like, Oh, what what are you doing? What's this? And they'll be like, you know, you get tanked up as much as you can before you get in the club. So then it's a the cheaper rest of the night. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? Why why would you just intentionally try and get drunk? kind of thing. Like in other culture, like in 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 places I think like Spain, for example, it's more like this kind of You kind of drink as like this kind of social kind of thing. It's just like you might have a cocktail or two with your mates and you stay out really late, whatever. But it's all just about the conversation and stuff. Whereas in places like Britain and Ireland and maybe the States as well, even though their drinking age is higher there. It's all about when you're young. It's about who can get the most drunk possible without throwing up. It's almost like this competition (laughs) with your mates. It's like you have to you have to ingest the ma- maximum amount of, a- of alcohol possible. And you, you always end up, don't you, when you're like 25, 26, you know your exact limit. And it's like, yes, I am my exact bit now where I if I have one more drink, that's it. But yes, it's now pretty much a free night for me for the rest of the night. All I've got to pay for yeah. now is the taxi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very true. And that's why it's hard, like different cultures, because my part, like, you know, to compare because I definitely think some are better than, than the Brits. And maybe it feels just feels more prevalent mm. to me here because of that reason. But my partner, who's from Romania, he said when he came to England a few years ago and he saw drunk lads out on the street, he was shocked. He couldn't believe their behavior, how they were, how much they could drink.
0: Really? Even, like
1: they looked they looked more unhealthy over here
0: that's interesting because i thought eastern europe was the same or worse than here when it comes to hard drink culture but maybe it differs in in romania um because the way i always viewed it was like yeah britain Ireland, maybe places like germany as well it's like yeah get as tanked up as possible Mm -hmm. then when you get to more the mediterranean places like spain and italy it's not really about that but then when you get to places like russia and belarus and maybe romania it's the same as here or worse like is uh, was i mistaken in thinking that then
1: well me i mean romania is so big i didn't realize how big it was until i went there so maybe it's just like right. the area that he's from um yeah but maybe like more sort of outer skirts like where it's a bit poorer it could be i think it could probably be more like that um yeah because yeah it, you talk about like the mediterranean like areas maybe it's just because we don't have good weather so all we've got is drinking <laughs>
0: yeah (laughs) that's pretty much it isn't it and yeah i was gonna say romania doesn't seem like it's like like you mentioned it almost seems like i've never been but just from what i hear from romanians i know and stuff it almost seems a bit disjointed once you're there it's like there's different cultures in different regions and it's not Mm -hmm. like they're all connected with each other it's like you could be in like the a city somewhere and the culture is completely different and then You might be out in the countryside and they don't even have phones there or something. And there's almost like no contact with the rest of the country. They're like in their little microcosms there. So it could have completely different cultural microcosms there, so to speak. Whereas in the UK, it's very much... We're almost a bit of a homogenous culture, aren't we? Like, I think so, yeah. They might have chips and gravy up north, but we... We know about it, and it's not <laughs> like it's not like this <laughs> super crazy yeah. thing. That, but we just have these very slight uh, regional differences. Um, but let's let's talk about this kind of stuff you do now. Then, so you say on your uh, Instagram profile that you're a calisthenics and handstand coach. Now, people might be listening and think, "Of what on earth is that?" So, tell us about what both of those things are.
1: Yeah. So, well, I after I kind of got clean and sober and I had that light bulb moment go off, I got in, started getting into fitness. So I started trying to run and like um, raise money for the hospice when my mum passed away. So that kind of triggered the fitness thing. And um, so I, and then I ended up doing a qualification to become a personal trainer because I just saw an advert in this gym that I was going to. So I was doing like the regular weight training, and going to like body pump classes and spin classes and all that kind of stuff. And then I uh, got a job in a like a local gym in Bath when I moved back over here, and I um I just found this pull-up bar and I started hanging off it. I couldn't do any pull-ups, but I just wanted to like hang upside down next. I thought, oh, that's quite fun. You used to do that as a child, and I don't know. I think I just I just became like this weird person that just hung upside down this pull-up bar, and no one really knew what to do with me in this gym. So after I'd done that sort of maxed out on boredom of that, I then I th- I don't know what happened, but maybe I came sort of came across the word like calisthenics and I I googled it and I found this girl on YouTube about seven years ago and she was flipping herself around a bar and i'm like she is so cool i wanted to be just like her she was like in really good shape like muscly tanned, doing like crazy cool stuff and she was stronger than anyone else lifting weights and i just thought i want that so i started to look up a calisthenics coach near me and i couldn't find anyone for ages but i finally came across this guy um uh, uh, his instagram name is coach quinney so i booked some sessions with him and I couldn't hang upside down on my own i had to get them to like help me get upside down and like go on the gymnast rings and do all these sorts of like interesting moves and shapes and, like get pull-ups but i was like super weak at the start but i thought i was really strong because i'd been weight training for a couple of years um but the rings like really humbled me because finally i had to like use my body weight against the instability of this like hooped shaped thing hanging from the air so I kind of started the calisthenics journey with that. But then I started seeing him do handstands. And I thought, I want to do that next. So then I got into handstands. And I, first of all, I was just throwing myself against the wall. And then finally realized it's really technical. And it's not just, you can just do it because you did it as a kid. Like, people in the circus train it professionally. And, you know, there's so many layers and elements to handstands. So I just kind of developed my own practice with it. And then somehow, I don't even know how it happened. It was all kind of a natural cycle. but. I just started, to, the more I did it and the more I was showing it off on Instagram, the more people wanted to learn from me. So I just started like teaching people one-on-one. And then I decided to launch my own handstand class a few years ago. And now my handstand class is are uh, My busiest classes of the week. And, and it, sometimes I laugh at myself that I'm teaching people how to stand on their hands and that people are paying me for it. Like it's, hmm. it's kind of ridiculous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what, what are calisthenics? What, what does that even mean?
1: calisthenics is like um i think it's described as like a raw version or like a street version of gymnastics so obviously gymnastics is like very strict you stick Mm. to like your lines your moves and everything but you can with calisthenics you can freestyle that more so you can flip yourself around bars it doesn't you don't need to follow particular rules you could learn like muscle ups or like how to swing yourself around the bar forwards or backwards it can just be a bit more raw and normal for like the everyday person so you don't need to be a gymnast to necessarily do it you can learn at any point
0: so it's kind of like um the gymnast version of parkour yeah
1: yeah
0: so so when because when you go on people's calisthenics um instagram profiles and stuff you usually see them like at parks and stuff and they'll just be doing stuff on like the monkey bars or whatever it is they'll just be doing these weird like exercises whatever they are so uh, is it kind of like it's could it be dis- described as like body weight training? So almost yeah, like exactly. doing so, yeah. so using your body to lift weights rather than actually using weights, and then it, and it can improve your strength and conditioning and stuff in that way.
1: Like nothing else, you can compare it to. That's that's what I loved about it. Like the power of like, especially as a female, like being able to do a pull up on your own and just like thinking like how I can use this in other like functional ways and just saying like. The strength and control and the muscle definition that you get like you can obviously still get that doing weights but the difference with calisthenics versus weights for me personally is that not only do you get strong but you become like more functionally strong and able to do things with your body that maybe you didn't think you could do before like you can turn in like weird directions you can do you become more flexible and mobile because you're sort of forcing yourself into like these more contorted positions and some moves so it's just interesting she yeah. suddenly like opened up this avenue of like oh my body can do some pretty cool stuff that i definitely didn't realize i could do before
0: now here's a um a topic i bang on about quite a bit to people who know me because um, there's not enough people doing it um so i think you'll agree with me on this but can you mm-hmm. advocate for the importance of exercise for mental health because I I'm constantly going on Facebook and it's full of vegans talking about, Oh, my life sucks and I hate everything and I want to die and blah, blah, blah. And not that I'm downplaying the struggles people are going through. These are real struggles and feeling suicidal and stuff is very real thing that we shouldn't undermine. But one thing that I think is very clear is that not enough people exercise and this is a gateway to good mental health do you are you a firm advocate in believing that um um exercise is beneficial for mental health and how beneficial do you think it is
1: absolutely i think it should be like if anyone's struggling with mental health it should be the first thing that you seek to do Mm. like start moving your body because it's just natural endorphins that you release afterwards you'll start feeling good and then you can keep like continuing on that journey. And if you still obviously need further help, then obviously go and seek professional help. But there's nothing like going to the gym, moving your body and starting to feel fit, whether it's working on weight loss or muscle growth or just yeah. flexibility, like it, it can be anything. It, or just enjoying a sport that you like to do if it's netball or something, like you're just gonna feel so much better. And I think that's like the gateway to like other things that you can discover about yourself in like a mental health journey
0: that's interesting. There's drugs in our own body we release <laughs> endorphins we release these happy chemicals without us having to ingest anything, just us lifting a heavy weight and re- doing repetitions with it or doing some push ups or um you know going down the park and getting on the monkey bars and seeing you know how far across them you can go out full off, or hang you know hanging on something mm-hmm. for as long as you want these just doing these things release happy chemicals that you already have inside your own body so folks listening please exercise for the sake of your mental health um and this is by the way this isn't just two people waffling pseudoscience on a podcast like This is just objective truth, right? That that exercising releases endorphins, releases those happy chemicals. And we're not saying that, you know, you you do some exercise, it's just gonna fix all your troubles and stuff like that. There's there's nothing that can literally do that. We're always gonna have troubles in this in this life that we live. But you know, anyone who exercises regularly can attest you will be much happier with that exercise than you will without it. In fact, I'm a firm believer. That you can't be happy without exercise. Would you go as far as to say that, that if you don't exercise, you literally can't even live technically a happy life?
1: I genuinely can't fathom in my brain now how some people can go their whole lives without at least stretching or moving their body or going mm. on a treadmill or something. I'm like, how how can that how can that be? Because that you just don't know what how good that can make you feel. And I, I find that really sad actually, that some people will never bother to go to the gym or think I could feel really good about myself
0: yeah and what about I mean I'm the worst person to speak on this at the moment because I love to eat some good old junk food what about the importance Mm -hmm. of healthy eating for mental health do you think or or, or do you think actually we live a happier life when we're eating all these lovely foods that we enjoy eating or do you think there's like a little balance what do you think of that
1: I think uh, I think about a good balance um yeah the the main sort of rule in like in terms of like personal trainers coaching to their clients is that we generally say try and find like an 80-20 balance. Right. Like 80% good, <laughs> 20% I would like bad in quotation marks or you yeah. know, just like chill out a bit. Maybe it's the weekends you want to chill out. Um, but it really varies from person to person. Interestingly, I I've had quite a lot of clients recently. And this is completely random that have been ex addicts, and for some reason we sort of attract each other in this way without realizing, mm. and they're they're the ones that are the most dedicated to their training, yeah. um, the ones that eat the best because they want to go all in and they take they just take their health and fitness very seriously. and I find that really interesting because we've all talked about it sort of collectively together. We're like, what is it about us that <laughs> makes us want to go the extra mile, but we just it's just that's something in us maybe
0: a question on veganism now do do you think that people who have faced hardship in their life are more likely to go vegan for the animals which is the only reason to be vegan by the way Um, Hmm. but do do you think people who have experienced hardship are are more likely to be vegan than people who haven't
1: I don't know that's a tough question actually I don't know I do know a lot of people though. again like ex-addicts that have gone into fitness and gone vegan like similar stories to me
0: Well, I I think there is a case for it. Um, So anecdotally, if you look across the vegan movement, it does seem to be rife with people who have had like really messed up experiences in their life, who've had like traumatic experiences or addiction or something like that. Um, You know, sexual abuse and other forms of trauma. The movement seems to be rife with people who have had really bad experiences. Mm. And I think that when we've had bad experiences in life, we're more likely to empathize with the animals and think, you know, I can put myself in their position. You know, I've experienced hardship. Um, I feel for the animals now because of the stuff that I've experienced. I, and I think there's a correlation there. Um, yeah. What do you think to that?
1: I definitely agree when you yeah. put it like that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For
0: sure. I think it's
1: just the ability to like look into, look into their life and be like, i i can like empathize in some some degree or like i feel bad for you like
0: well it it flips the carnist myth i think on its head the idea that vegans are privileged or you know we we don't have any issues going on in our lives so we 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 focus on these minor issues like you know animals being mass murdered by the trillion every single year you know the tiny uh minor issue that it is but i I think that completely flips that on its head it's like no actually if anything it's it's you mate who's probably just lived your little privileged life and never really gone through anything and that's why you you know you're eating that steak on your plate now without a second thought um and and the other thing is you know the vegans admittedly And this is true as far as I can see from studies. We do have high rates of things like depression, anxiety, and stuff like that. And I saw someone being grilled about this on the show, and, you know, it was – I think, you know, you know, the the carnist logic with this. It's like, well, this means then vegans that veganism is uh, you're not getting the nutrients you want. And it's uh, it's making you all depressed and, you know, not, you know, omnivores, quote, unquote, are more happy than you guys because we're getting all these these nutrients and eat red meat and you'll be happy and blah, blah, blah. And the person clapped back and they said, no, it's actually that's just correlation without causation. Right. He said the likely reason that you see depression and stuff are higher in the vegan movement is people who are more likely to be depressed, who are more likely more susceptible to things like depression are actually more likely to be predisposed to going vegan. And I think there's a reason for that. I think those of us who are kind of more, um, you know, maybe emotionally aware who are more sensitive to injustice, who actually see, who, who, who are affected by things, people mm-hmm. who are more likely to be affected by things. We're more likely to go vegan than those people who might not have depression or whatever it is, but just go through life just drifting like a stone in a stream, not really caring about anything. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there it makes people-
1: sense. It makes a lot of
0: sense. Yeah, I think I think um, I think the type of people who are more likely to get mental health issues. They're just more attuned to all the crap that's going on in this sucky world. We don't have this yeah. ridiculous rose tinted optimum by uh, uh, optimism bias, which, by the way, I did have at one point. I remember before I was vegan, I was one of these people that's, you know good always triumphs over evil and you know, in in the western world it's all good and nothing bad happens and evil you know is just in these places like where there's war going on and stuff like that and you take off those rose-tinted glasses as, as soon as you go Absolutely. vegan don't you yeah you do
1: <laughs> yeah I really think actually going vegan opened my eyes to so many other things not just veganism but just other issues going on in the world and I just became mm. generally more open-minded to other yeah other things. So that, that was very interesting.
0: With me, you know, it's funny. It's almost flipped me the other way. So when <laughs> that was true of me when I first went vegan. I think I became a more compassionate person generally. Now I've just gone full misanthrope because of the amount of time that I've gone vegan. And it's now like I care less about human issues as a result of being an animal <laughs> rights activist. So I've, it's kind of done the other thing to me. Um, but what, what are some... Um, What are some problems you see with the current vegan movement, animal rights movement, however you want to refer to it? Is there anything you think is kind of holding us back as a movement?
1: Oh, um, I feel like I was talking about this with someone the other day and I'm trying to think of what what it was that we were touching on, but um, it's a very good question. Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe like, the two healthy 100 percent pure clean eating either extreme i think actually to be honest yeah. we could go either way with it it could be like fully junk food vegans fully 100 pure can't touch a pinch of salt vegans right i think that's why the balance is important like an 80 yeah. or 20 or 70 or 30 or whatever you want to do with it i think those people cause problems and they make us the ones in the middle being normal look mental and maybe right. that's what gives us a bit of a bad rep
0: yeah see i have a weird view on this when it comes to the dietary stuff so i've heard some vegans say that it's every vegan's duty to be as healthy looking as possible to represent veganism Mm -hmm. well firstly i don't i don't subscribe to that because number one i think that kind of too much focus is on the fact that it's like a health kind of movement when I want us to just be seen as normal people. It's not a diet, it's a justice movement. The other thing is if you don't have diversity of bodies with it inside the animal rights movement, it kind of all, it it could also make, um, It could also make the food kind of look crap as well. Not that that's Mm -hmm. the reason we should be selling veganism. It's not about the food. But I like the fact that we have fat vegans here and there who, you know, that we, (laughs) it shows that we have delicious junk and stuff. But I I like the fact that we have a variety of bodies. We've got like huge, big gym going dudes who can like outlift like every single non-vegan you know. We've got fat vegans who like junk food. We've got slim and athletic vegans. We've just got the normal vegan with a little i don't know little pot belly who works like an office job and just doesn't isn't that fussed about yeah. exercise i want to I, I like showing that we're just a diverse group of people and in yeah. any case if someone wants to say veganism is unhealthy or vegans can't outlift me or whatever we've got all the people to to prove them wrong on that anyway we we yeah. all know a vegan who can outlift any non-vegan or whatever it is or like you know we've got athletes competing at the highest level in the olympics and stuff we don't need to all look like that as long as we've got a good variety of vegans being like that like i don't see the issue but i don't know what your your thoughts are on that
1: yeah no i i would agree um i think as long as we're kind of away from like the when everyone thought that it was just like pale skinny people that like would rotting away i think as long as we are kind of away from that then that's that's not a good image for us is it but um i like normalization is obviously really important and people that can relate to other people's bodies is very important to attract people to the lifestyle of being vegan
0: yeah, I hate that confirmation bias things carnists do where, you know, if I'm a non vegan, like I'm, I'm pale, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, I've grown up in a country with no sunlight and I'm white, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to be pale. Um, so, you know, when I'm a non vegan, it's Oh, George, you have such clear, bright skin. And now I'm a vegan. Oh, you're pale. And then, you know, when I was non-vegan, it's uh, George, you've, you know, you've got a nice slim athletic build, like a football player. And now I'm a vegan. Oh, George, you're skinny and wasting away. Whatever. It
1: is. Oh, that's like, so true. That's yeah. painfully true. Yeah. You, you can yeah. look
0: literally exactly the same as a vegan yeah. or a non-vegan. And the carnists will, that they, they, they will completely change how they view you, whatever it is just based on whether they find out whether you're a vegan or not. So that's one of the crazy things.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree
0: more. (laughs) Um, Coming to the end of the podcast, Bryony now. So I guess I'll ask you one or two final questions. So um, the first would just be, what would your advice be to someone who was in a really dark place, such as yourself was and has resorted to drugs? Um, What would you say to those people?
1: I would say that you don't have to let it get to rock bottom to make a change in your life. I think it's—I know often that is a, a case um, where people have to hit the lowest point of their life to make a change. But if you can get yourself out of that situation before you have to get to the worst point in your life, um, just start doing something simple for yourself every day. Just take yourself on a walk, have one healthier vegan meal every day. Maybe that'll make you feel better for your body just start moving your body tuning into like bet you know better surroundings whether that's like cutting people out of your life that aren't good for you or scenarios that you're in like i stopped going to parties as soon as i decided to stop taking drugs just because i knew that if i was around those people i'd just instantly get drawn back in
0: right and yeah thank you for that and we hope um anyone who's listening who is in such a place can take inspiration from that. And um, I guess the final thing I'll just ask you is, did you want to shout out your business or anything? Do you want to like, how can, how can people get to you and um, get learning? So, so you teach both calisthenics and the handstand stuff. Like how, how, can people reach you?
1: Yeah, sure. So my Instagram is upside down vegan. Um, it says what it does basically.
0: Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> and uh, actually funnily enough for, well, a few years ago when i changed my instagram instagram name to that someone said you'll never get any clients when you call yourself vegan and anyway most of my clients now i could say are probably vegan or like interested in being vegan so Amazing. haha that person um but <laughs> you can find me on upside down vegan and if you want to learn handstands um i teach two classes a week i have a patreon account where people can sign up there's different membership levels that help people you know on different budgets so i th- make it very affordable for people and um my calisthenics stuff i do it more in person um i teach in bath at a calisthenics gym called cali unity um but i also teach on my patreon handstands and flexibility so once you start going into bodyweight stuff you realize you probably need to stretch out as well so that's kind of like the idea behind it so i teach splits back bends and handstands online and all my in-person stuff
0: that's great. Okay. Everyone go and check it out. Um, but yeah, thank you, Bryony, for coming on to the podcast today and for speaking about um, such a sensitive issue that many who were in your position will want to talk about. And uh, yeah, I hope it's been an, an interesting listen for all my listeners. So thank you again.
1: Thanks so much.